Welcome back to SideQuest episode 52, Zelda Majora's Mask, episode six. And back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Rusty Shantz, and best wishes to our other colleague, Mr. Benjamin Koslowski, who is down with, uh, under the weather right now. And so hopefully he's doing one of my favorite and uh, potentially one of your favorite uh, sick time activities, Wes. And hopefully he's playing through this portion with the Zora right now at the Great Bay and enjoying Epona and Epona's song and all that the Bay has to offer. And welcome. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a good uh, place for a little R&R, the Great Bay. You're there with the soothing sound of the waves, the the birds, the seagulls crying above, um, maybe a little bit of uh, fish snack or something tasty to eat. I don't know. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I hope he's recovering so that he can join us for next time at least. I, I really do because um, as we know, it is impolite to speak behind someone's back and intellectually it is impolite to uh, take a position against the position of a fellow thinker when they are not present to defend their position. But there were a couple of things I wanted to bring up today. A, about uh, the developmental level of this game and how it becomes more complex as we go, just as we talked about with Final Fantasy VII, sort of mirroring how a human becomes more complex as they bootstrap themselves up um, in a Piagetian sense. Uh, Jean Piaget, um, as we grow up, we get more and more complex. And something interesting about that too is it's just some of the things that one has failed to do at this point, and we ran into this in Final Fantasy a couple times, especially me, because I was just trying to go linearly straight through it rather than in sort of a spiral way, uh, picking up things as I went and going back. But um, at this point in the game in the Great Bay, if you do not have three to four bottles, which I of course do not, only having two, you have to sort of go back in the game and get more bottles, which is not an easy uh, task itself. Like the easiest way to get another bottle is to go back in time, defeat Goat again, not that easy though, I've done it twice now, win the Goron uh, race again, which is also not easy for me. It's harder than the Chocobo race, I would say from Final Fantasy VII, then get the bottle, then proceed back to the Pirate's Cove in order to get to the temple, which will inevitably be even more difficult than the temples that we've seen before. So I definitely wanted to mention that, and uh, I suppose I should ask first whether you picked up on that, and then I want to touch on the, the, the theme of death and development and growing up as well, which I think we run into quite starkly here again in the Great Bay. Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, I mean, the bottles have a long and storied history with Zelda games going back at least as far as uh, Link to the Past on the Super Nintendo. I remember getting bottles in that game pretty distinctly. And um, yeah, they're a critical item, right? Because they're, they're sort of the item of items. You can, you can hold anything with a bottle. Well, you can hold a lot of different kinds of things and, and use them for all sorts of things. Um, we talked last time a little bit about how like the most powerful uh, healing um, potion in the game is actually this, this magical milk that you get uh, from the the bar, the um, the milk bar in town, uh, the Chateau Romani, <laughs> and uh, it, it maxes out your your magic and it doesn't go down, right? It just keeps it at the max level, so you can just continually use magic if if you feel the need. Uh, but I mean, you can obviously hold other things too, other healing potions, fairies that pop out automatically when you die, which is a good strategy, you know, just in case. Um, but also, uh, you know, in this part of the game, you, like you mentioned, you need them for the progression of the story itself. You, you have to get a certain number of the, uh, the missing eggs, the Zora eggs, and bring them back um, 
to the uh, to the mad scientist type guy with his uh, his tank of water. Um, but yeah, I think it certainly makes it easier if you have more bottles. But I think it is still doable. You just it involves more backtracking. You know, you pick up an egg or two, run them back to his tank, drop them off, run back to get the other ones, take them back, drop them off. So it just it just sort of simplifies things if you can carry more at one time. Um, I think the first bottle you get is is with the Deku um, chapter where you uh, you rescue the hag, right? She gives you a bottle um, to, to get some potion to her or her sister rather. I can't remember now where the second bottle is. Um, I assume it's somewhere in Clocktown or or in the Goron area. But then the third one, yeah, I think is the gold dust, right? When you win the race. Um, and whatever's in your bottles will disappear uh, when you go back in time and start over. But the bottle itself sticks around, which is super handy. It's uh, It's one of your permanent items once you get it. That's really interesting because, you know, just a couple things. It, that reminds me getting the bottles and also uh, capturing the uh, pieces of heart, the four pieces that make for a new heart that increase your life gauge as side quests. That reminds me a bit of when I first learned to translate Latin and to translate Greek. And at first it's very difficult to translate just whole sentences because there's so much you have to keep in your mind. The new vocabulary, the fact that the, the language is an inflected language rather than a, a linear language and English word order matters and far less in Latin. Uh, almost not at all, technically not at all, though often the word order is observed just like in German. The word order does matter more in German. But uh, it would be so hard to keep the conjugations and the de the declensions in my head from the nouns and the adjectives and the conjugations for the verbs that I could I could only go very slowly. And there would be so much backtracking to my Wheelocks or to my far uh, Homeric grammar book. Um, and so... Uh, it's interesting because I'm seeing that here too. It's almost as if the less you embrace the game, the less you indulge the game, the fewer side quests you do, the more necessary backtracking you have to do. And the slower that you can progress because you haven't put that in, you haven't made that initial investment. And that that ultimately, even though you're slower at first when you make that initial investment, getting those bottles, doing those side quests, learning your vocabulary and your declensions and your conjugations and Latin enables you to move faster and faster. It's almost like this principle that my principle at my school says, which is go slow to go fast. And something I've noticed not only in my character, but also in my gameplay, which is the manifestation of my character, is that I always try and rush. I always try and rush through and it always costs me which reminds me of another expression uh, from a baseball coach I had, which is always be fast, but never in a hurry. And I would argue that being in a hurry is a definite psychological state that makes you make mistakes, which I think everybody who has ever existed empirically understands, especially if they've ever had to button up a shirt or tie a tie. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. so I, I, I think that again, and I really want to focus on development as, as we continue to develop into this game and see just how much, deeper and richer it is than our initial or especially my initial estimation of it especially as a nintendo kids game is that even acquiring the even indulging in these side quests which seem like side quests like you know the difficulty of getting new heart pieces the difficulty of getting new bottles are themselves analogs for acquiring new more substantial skills that take time to develop when you're young but will pay major dividends when you're older i think i'm starting to see that in this game yeah, yeah, I think, well, it does sort of 
indicate that as well with the um the songs that you learn uh right. those are another kind of variation on the theme um which is what what, you, what you're saying about memorizing uh paradigms and, and sort of forms it's yeah that that strikes me as being similar to learning a a part of a song or, or an entire right. song right um there, there's a kind of uh, once once you have the sort of shape of something, you know, then you remember it a lot better. Um, music is a great way to do that, or, or poetry, of course. Um, a lot of you know teachers like to teach uh, languages through songs, or at least partly, like in, incorporate yes. music and and maybe even rhythm and movement in their lessons because it just sort of sticks better for kids. Um, yeah, and I think I, I really do think that. Um, it's a it's sort of a hype thing these days is like gamification of learning right and it's not yes. always that successful but i think that there is a sort of inherent learning that happens in games right you, you don't have to gamify your learning you just have to sort of play the game and you will learn uh and hopefully you'll you'll learn things that are worth learning um in addition to sort of the the, the concrete skills that help you with just doing the game better um, which are, you know, fun in themselves and, and give a sort of pleasure. But, you know, there's there's definitely certain themes and, and like you make those analogies between things um, in the game. There, there's certain habits, perhaps uh, character development uh, for the person playing that is that take place. Or or at least, like you say, you notice something about the way that you interact in the world, right? You you learn something about yourself that you you can realize <laughs> that you you still hurry uh, through things, even though you know you ought not to, um, maybe that that's beneficial. Like to know that about yourself, that that's a piece of self knowledge that's worth having. Um, it's yeah. certainly it's certainly something that um, everybody can probably relate to. Yeah, it's every, I think every language has got their version of that. Um, uh, Festi not lente, right in Latin, right? Hurry slowly. Mm. Um, we we certainly can can recognize that. Well, and it's interesting, too, just because uh, I'm under a month from going back to our alma mater, St. John's, for a week-long Aristotle conference, uh, which will be wonderful, though in Santa Fe now rather than Annapolis. And one of my least favorite teachers was the one that gave me one of the most scathing reviews during one of our Don Rags. And all the other teachers and professors had said, you know, very nice, kind things, you know, somewhat easy things to say to a student, you know, good thinking, notice when he's gone, things like that. But then this one said that I sometimes came out with very, uh, she didn't say superficial ideas. She, she said something account, account to simplistic. Like I would try for simplistic overgeneralizations. I would attempt to get at the essence of a text very early on and then make an argument for that. And I, I have to say, I've forgotten the name of that particular teacher. She was the one that ran the Emile Rousseau uh, preceptorial at that time. And, but you know, looking at how I play Final Fantasy VII, looking at how I play Zelda Majora's Mask, and, you know, self-reflection is a part of this process insofar as the, the union process of individuation is something that all humans pursue, especially creative ones. It's like, I think she's quite right, to be honest. I think uh, one of my youthful tendencies has been and was to attempt to get at the essence of something without putting in the necessary work to understand it. So like the beginning of the Zelda, I just dip my toe into it. I know about this clock town. Well, obviously this is a game about, you know, finitude and time and how we're all bound by repetitive patterns that we seek to improve upon. It's like, yeah, well, maybe in broad strokes, but you really only, so I guess the point I'm making besides observing my own errors 
in uh, living and playing in this world are that you really can't get a substantial view of the essence of a thing without starting to get into the nuances and the subtleties and the real facts of a thing. Because now this game is really expanding and we're starting to see just how often you have to go back in time and how your mistakes can cost you. And we're starting to acquire, you know, abilities within the games and understanding themes within the games and understanding how to use time within the game rather than just fear it. And that's really deepening our relationship to the game as we start to see a continuance of a theme that I wish Ben were here to observe. Because again, we find somebody who dies right in front of us, we have to heal the soul of, who then becomes our mask, making me think that more and more, uh, Link, I almost called him Harry, because he is the representative of the universal hero or the hero's path in this particular world. Um, it's almost as if what he's doing is acquiring, uh, It's he's showing us what the path of learning is. You acquire the experiences of others in inter and weave them into your map of reality, which you then share with others um, in order to help them heal or repair their maps of reality. Because I see, uh, and I, I hope this isn't too convoluted a point, Link both gaining from the people who die in, from, in front of him, but also acting sort of like a priest to them, giving them last rites, healing their souls so that they can die. Because he's sort of like uh, a character who should have been in Blade Runner at the end with uh, Rutger Hauer's character who talks about his, his memories, his incredible memories that will fade away like tears in the rain. That Link is like the receptacle. He is like himself a bottle that accepts these experiences from these people so that they can live on through him or that that which is good in them can live on through him. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in this case, there, there's an interesting uh parallel particularly these last two the goron and the zora you see um the spirit of the one right it's it's too late for him um right. by, by quite a bit uh he's he's there only as a ghost um and he's sort of the hero of of his people uh, and this one um is is a a rock star so right another kind of yeah. culture hero um, <laughs> uh, but but he is uh in the process of dying yeah and so you you're sort of there for his last words, which he'll of course say as many times as you need him to <laughs> in the way of these video games. Um, you, you can have him say those last over and over if you need to kind of hear it again to get, get the full picture. He'll, he'll also on his, um, his tomb, which is made of his, uh, his, his guitar, which is a, a spine of a big fish, right? Um, you can, you can read about like the different movements uh, and how to do them, how to utilize your new uh, form as the Zora, right? So there, there's a funny kind of, yeah, you, you convey not only that person's sort of essence in the mask, but all the kind of new abilities, the, the powers uh, that it confers upon you. Uh, you can actually do new things with it. Um, and of course, each time you're wearing one of these masks, your, your instrument is transformed as well, right, along with you. Um, so you, you kind of can put something new into the world too, right? You you express yourself a little bit differently. Uh, it, his his uh, sound effects I find so amusing. Um, it's it's of course like a moving scene in a way because he's you know dying there, but he also has these great kind of uh, wailing uh, rock star sounds that he makes, uh, and and they sort of uh, intersperse uh, his words to you as you're talking to him and, and getting his kind of his story um he's like a i think they're kind of modeled on the beatles almost 
uh, he, he's like the, uh, the Lenin or the McCartney figure. And, and when you go back uh, and you wear his mask, people recognize you as him. They'll let you, you know, um, they'll let you into their, their dressing rooms or their, their um, practice rooms and you can sort of perform right uh, along with them. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really, I think an interesting mixture of right. The, the morning, the last rites element, but also the, yeah, the carrying it on, the expressing it, um, learning from it. That makes me want to ask you two or three possible questions. One, somewhat simplistic. When you go into the bassist room, how is it that you were supposed to play that song alongside him uh, in such a way as to have him not call you a novice? It's interesting how disparaging he is. And just, it is also interesting considering what draws people together into a band because um, even though there must be some personal affection between people, I think I'll, also just like on a sports team or like at, you know, um, at a hospital or in a law firm, there's a certain level of skill that needs to be shared between the individuals too, or even a tennis partner. If you're not at least close enough to equal in order to have many good rallies over time, it's not going to be very fun for people, right? But uh, how is it that you get past that part? It was very frustrating, even though I obviously know I'm not very good on that ocarina or that uh, bonefish guitar or those drums. Uh, I guess it's interesting. You are yourself making up an entire band almost at this point. Um, but I wanted to ask you about that first, but then I have two more questions after it. Oh yeah, that's a good, that's a good detailed question that I don't fully recall, but I, I suspect that there is a, uh, a place in that cave, the, that uh, sort of network of caves that the Zora's domain is in this game. Uh, somewhere in there, I think you can read something that gives you a clue about what notes he's looking for. Because this is one of the cases where you can't simply just play the notes back to him uh, or even with the right timing or, or anything like that. I think you have to play uh, a point. point. Uh, yeah, maybe you can figure it out musically, but I think that somewhere, I, th I suspect that it's once you have the hook shot that you go explore some more and you'll find something written somewhere. Um, maybe Macau himself had written down like, oh, these would be some good licks to play on my guitar, you know, let me show them to, to Evan sometime, something like that. Well, you know, it's excellent that you bring up the hook shot because just, I want to lay out what the hook shot is. It is a chain, it is, mm, sorry, a, a chained instrument that allows you either to shoot and drag something towards you or to drag you towards something to raise you up to the perspective or level okay. of a new place or to bring something down to your level. And I want to connect that to the idea that over time, so Ben talked about the racism of characters within this game, the overt racism, as in some characters will treat you differently depending on what your race is. And I think that's fair if we're going to go with sort of the soft definition of racism rather than doing harm to somebody because they're a different race, offering privileges. That's fine. I, I don't really have a bone in that. I, I don't have a dog in that fight. But what's interesting is I, I'm wondering what the comment is on the process of learning here. The idea that Link is getting the ability to embody all as an empty vessel, if we take him as sort of a tabula rasa empty vessel, like a bottle himself that is filling himself with uh, potion ingredients, he now is able to embody three different races besides human. And he's sort of a weird human fairy too, because he's a human who people think is a fairy, right? And actually has a fairy like one of those wood spirits. Uh, so that's very odd. But now he can change into a Deku, he can change into a Zora, he can change into a Goron, and I imagine at some point he'll be able to, uh, I don't know, are the Garuda a different uh, 
race. I, I want to ask about them separately, though, because um, because I do also want to mention that we do get our first uh, touch of the Gerudo, who are traditionally the race from which the antagonist comes from, and they are portrayed in a very negative light. They are pirates. They've stolen something. So I want to ask about their introduction, but I also want to ask about what it, what is happening with the fact that Link is acquiring all these masks now and all these tools, and the fact that uh, this hook shot does itself seem to be, at least to me, especially since you get it so late, um, sort of a metaphor for language or communication and ability to share and change perspectives. And that I think I would connect that also to the, the idea of the masks and the abilities and the new uh, conversations that Link has uh, with these people in differing villages because of the uh, masks he can put on. Uh, I would not see the mask as like a, a falsity, or as a lie, but rather something that is an expansion of him and his character. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Samurai Jack, and there was a specific episode where he learned the martial arts of many different peoples in order to fight against Aku. And I'm just wondering if something like that is happening here. Again, touching on education. Yeah, I, I don't know that particular Samurai Jack, but I love that show. That was a great show. Um, it makes me think a little bit of... Uh, uh, Kung Fu Panda to throw another one at you. Right. <laughs> uh, right. You have the different sort of techniques uh, used by the different uh, animals and, and each is like sort of distinctive and, and, and special. Um, it's a great, there's a lot of great, I think, uh, riffs on that sort of idea. But, but in this game in particular, um, you, you would sort of think that the Gerudo might be the fourth uh, form that you'd take. Um, I, I think that that's kind of an interesting uh, red herring, actually, because yeah, they are presented as a kind of enemy, right? That, or, or traditionally, at least, um, it turns out. I think as you infiltrate their area, that they are also, you know, they're they're sort of acting with with good intentions to to try to, um, you know, uh, clear up this uh, storm, this mysterious uh, murkiness of the ocean and whatnot. But um, but in so doing, they they have uh, stolen these eggs, right? Or they they there's another person who needs these eggs, the um, the singer, the the Zora singer, and so she's someone who, if you try to talk to her at this point, even with the mask on and, and in that form, uh, she won't speak to you. She seems to have lost her voice entirely, um, which is a kind of interesting parallel, actually, with Link, right? Link doesn't seem to actually say anything. He's a silent protagonist, uh, like many of these classic games. Um, but anyway, you know, so that, that sort of element of, of lacking a voice is kind of an interesting variation on that, that theme. Um, but actually, uh, you, you do get one more um, transformation mask, but, but only once you have collected every single other mask. It, it's the very last one that you get, and it can only be used I believe in in the very final boss fight, um, it's a it's kind of a special extra form of a so-called fierce deity, <laughs> right? So it, it's pretty pretty awesome. But 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 anyway, to the the point about like um, expanding uh, abilities, gaining items, and it's cool. I think that you get to sort of use even the items that you have. You, you sort of have to learn to use them in new ways as well as you go through the game. I, I would definitely agree that the game gets harder as it goes along, gets more sophisticated and sort of challenges that it throws at you. It potentially gets more frustrating as a result, right? You have to sort of start over more and more often <laughs> uh, as you go along. Um, 
maybe lots of times. And, and even if you complete certain portions of it, you might still get stuck at something else that you'll have to go back and do the part you're, you're even quite good at, right? You just get better and better at doing that quickly so you can get on to the thing you're maybe not so good at. Um, but anyway, uh, with the hookshot in particular, uh, it's, it's cool. Like you say, it, it does seem to represent something like uh, bringing people across a gap or something like that, right? Whether that gap is uh, a semantic one where, where we're sort of using uh, the same word in, in different ways, and so we don't understand one another, uh, which I think happens pretty frequently. Um, or, or maybe it's a you know a literal gap of you know you got to actually move right to that person's perspective to see things the way they're seeing them, right? Uh, it, it's a cool item. It's definitely one that you know people are big fans of because it certainly opens up in a really dramatic way um, new areas that you can get to. Um, it's just really fun to use, right? It's got this kind of cool sound effect that goes with it that's very, very iconic. Um, it's like, yeah, a, a grappling hook plus a projectile weapon, plus it just, um, it, it, it's got all kinds of fun associations with it, right? Like, I think, I think of um, being, you know, uh, Batman essentially <laughs> and like uh, leaping from rooftop to rooftop. It, it's that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so it, it's, it's certainly one of the cooler items. I like the point you made that it, it has sort of two very distinct uses where it either brings something to you or it brings you to something else, uh, to another place. And, and I think those are kind of interesting, uh, flip sides of the same process. Um, it, it's certainly, uh, in my top, you know, one or two, uh, favorite items from, from Money Zelda game. And it definitely, it recurs throughout the series. It, it's, it's, uh, it's essential. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's interesting. You make me think that it's sort of like a positive uh, version of what Scorpion from Mortal Kombat can do. Come here. <laughs> you know, where he sort of wrenches you towards him with himself a hookshot-like harpoon. Um, but here, you're not always yeah. violently wrenching someone over to you. It's almost as if what he represents is somebody, you know, sort of, like Jafar with his snake, which is an obvious uh, symbol of his intellect and his sort of Luciferian nature, uh, his ability to wrench you over to his perspective by force, by, by something beyond persuasion, like destroying somebody with your rationality who is not as rational as you are. And you sort of, through this act of verbal violence, force them over to your perspective, which I, I do think is um, one of the negative uh, goals of debate, even formalized debate. I do think true debate, you're trying to persuade by means of, um, you know, better reason. But what's interesting here is you get both the negative, well, not the negative, you get both positive aspects, right? That language here or reasoning, if it is being portrayed by a literal chain that connects two things together, is shown as something that either brings you towards something new, like towards an object or towards a new idea, or brings an idea home to you. It, it does strike me as a metaphor for conversation and also for the fact that of what you mentioned, as you mentioned when we first got the tiny Bronco and then the high wind in Final Fantasy VII is that, again, this increased capacity for motion within the world is very interesting. It, it shows, because one thing Zelda does masterfully is it always puts stuff just above your head in these places the first time you go, right? Like all these hearts that are on top of roofs that look so easy to get to, but then these boundaries are insuperable at this point. 
So you have to, again, go back and then with these new tools, get what you had, sort of like how we're going back in time in a very meta way and playing back through these games and getting what we didn't get uh, through the first time. And just to keep mentioning that, that, that theme is hit even harder by the fact that things go back to normal in the bad way they were every time you restart uh, the three-day cycle, right? Like the water in the swamp gets repolluted. The ice in the, uh, the Goron Valley comes back. I'm sure the water in the Zora place gets murky again in the Great Bay. Um, yeah. So there's that repetition there too. Yeah. No, yeah, just agreeing. Uh... I, I mean, I think there's a certain, uh, Ben pointed this out last time, there's a certain way that the game tries to help you along, right? You can skip the whole dungeon, you can go straight to the boss, and so you can clear up those things more quickly the next time. But yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't stop them from, from coming back and um, being that, that same obstacle again. Uh, and, and yeah, in this case, I think in, in neither of those others was it really so in your face uh, as it is in the Great Bay, um, that this is like this environmental issue is a big problem. Uh, obviously, the poison swamp is kind of a a negative, right? But it's it's more the fact that the the princess is missing. That's sort of like the big problem there. And similarly, in the Goron Mountain, right? You you know the ice is kind of a hassle, uh, but there's like you know the the elder is missing and the great hero is missing. He hasn't come back. Um, there, there's sort of that. That seems to be the bigger problem there. Whereas here, it it really is sort of the emphasis is on um, the the illness of the place itself. Um, the guitarist, you know, hasn't been missing that long, and so when you come back as him, people are um, relieved, but still like mostly concerned about the fact that Lulu has lost her voice. She has lost her uh, her eggs. The Zora eggs are all missing, and the ocean is behaving very strangely, right? Like this, this environmental theme, I think, comes through more strongly uh, here in in the Great Bay. Um, yeah, and and I would want to kind of connect that, I guess, to the the Gerudo people. Um, they they are also concerned about it, but their attempt to solve the problem is actually exacerbating it, right? They've they've stolen these eggs um, in the hopes that it will clear up the ocean issue. But but actually, um, you gotta steal them back anyway <laughs> uh, to help out the Zora people, right? It's it's like there's a certain way, there's a certain like order of operations you've got to do <laughs> to to solve this this massive uh, disaster. Yeah, and that makes me I, I one of my big questions for you is I wanted to ask about the theme of birth and death in this particular part of the game that seems to invite it so much. We have this guitarist die right in front of us which is quite shocking. And um, then we, uh, we have the opportunity to get these eggs back and hopefully help them survive. Uh, not to mention the fact that this, uh, you know, this great lead singer finds herself stricken voiceless with her eggs gone. I, I wonder what sort of comment is being made there. But the second thing I just sort of wanted to mention is a, a claim made about Macbeth by Shakespeare is that nature itself is affected by the actions of man, that there's some sort of unus mundus, as the unions would say, that there is some parity between the phenomena of nature, like storm, the storm in King Lear, or the, uh, the horses of the king eating each other, like the mares of Diomedes from classical mythology and Macbeth, that nature itself, as humans are part of nature, 
can be affected in a negative or ill way by the evil actions of man. So Macbeth had obviously killed the king and done something deeply unnatural. Is there something like that going on in this Zelda game? Is it the invasion of the Gerudo into the Zora territory? Was there some mistake or something rotten in the state of Denmark to in, in this land that's causing this to happen? Or is it all just, um, or are all the problems, the environmental problems, in this uh, in this world, in these four corners of the world, uh, a result of the sort of collective embodiment of evil, which is Majora's Mask, or the imp wearing Majora's Mask at this point. Is the comment on this game simply that the, the world has sort of become polluted and now needs to be fixed, or is it the actions of the sentient species within the world within this world that has led to pollution and it requires the sort of enlightened hero to clear things up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely the, the second one, I think. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a theme that you see in a lot of games and a lot of stories and things. And, uh, and I think this one is, is kind of approaching it in an interesting way. You, you do see that, that um, kind of theme of, of leadership or, or lack thereof, uh, really early on, actually, with um, with the mayor of Clocktown himself, right, who's sort of caught between competing interests um, and also has this kind of personal problem that he can't really tell anybody about, right, his son missing. Um, and so th that's, that's certainly uh, signaled for you pretty early there, as much as you're chasing um, the Skull Kid with Majora's Mask, you're also busily uh, solving these kind of uh, local problems everywhere you go. You, you, you deal with the the Deku princess, you deal with the elder um, frozen in ice up on the mountain, and here, yeah, you, you've got to deal with this um, particularly complex uh, situation with, with the singer and the eggs and the pirates, right? Uh, there, yeah, there doesn't seem to be a, um, a single uh, ruler in Zora's domain this time around. Um, in an Ocarina of Time, of course, he's he's sitting there on his throne and he sort of like uh, scooches aside so he can get by to go to the Jabu Jabu dungeon, which is really funny. Um, but in this case, uh, that, that great Zora uh, figure is not uh, immediately apparent anyway. Um, you, you instead, you find the, the singer who everyone seems to be concerned about. And yeah, I think, her her lack of um, fertility, right, is like sort of a, um, an image of what's going on with the ocean as a whole. Um, her mm. her sort of inability to speak, right, reflects the the kind of problem that um, we as like sentient beings, like you say, we're we're sort of responsible in a way that um, we ourselves. Uh, should probably recognize right and and should should do something about uh and yeah i like the the shakespeare reference i think is a, an interesting one because of course you know at that time he's writing for a, a couple of different audiences at the same time right he's writing for a popular audience and he has to kind of keep everyone's in, engagement in different ways he, he does that pretty skillfully apparently uh you know he's pretty successful in his own day but he's also writing for a an elite audience right the the rulers the leaders the intelligentsia of the time and and so he has to put that in as well and he has to sort of uh, approach like in, in Macbeth's case right he 
he's talking about something historical, but he's doing it in a way that's that's really really relevant to the uh, current uh, monarch, right? Who's who's a new ruler and from a different part of the country and and has a sort of complex uh, relationship to uh, to his his new kingdom, right? So, like these things, I think are 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 always going to kind of emerge in the way that we tell stories. Um, and if it's about you know environmental degradation, that's sort of like a tool in the artist's uh, toolkit, maybe a, a really important one even to sort of say something about you know leadership and and moral uh, responsibility and virtue and and things like that, um, which you know is at once literally the case that you know there is environmental problems. It's also sort of metaphorically the case that um, our negligence our ignorance our our carelessness is is to blame for that and that by you know trying to solve things purely technocratically we're not addressing sort of the root causes of the corruption um maybe we can't you know like certain religious traditions would say that we, we are not able to um by ourselves address the the root c corruption of our nature um that that's another <laughs> uh, possible way to go with it. I guess I, I I kind of doubt that that's the way that um, this game is is pointing us. But but I, I'm not so sure about Shakespeare. To be honest, he, that's one of the most interesting questions to me. Is where he really falls on that um, kind of human nature question. But yeah, well, and, and we'll have plenty of time to discuss that because just to remind the listeners, uh, West Shands, Sarah Miller, and I are going to on Sarah's suggestion get serious about Western history and start going through some Shakespeare together. And I'm also doing a sort of side project where I'm listening and reading to 30 Shakespeare plays in 30 days. I'm gonna try and get a podcast on each of those, hopefully with several different people, uh, definitely with Wes at least once, uh, maybe multiple times if he'll agree, we'll see. Um, but I, I, it's very interesting too, just to broaden the question of environmentalism and its root causes, whether we're getting sort of a Christian slash Aristotelian idea that because we are mixed with matter and matter is corruptible, we are always fighting a fight against death, which is also a sort of evolutionary and I would say current Jordan Petersonian perspective on life. Hey, listen, we're degenerating DNA vessels and we need to uh, continue improving the world around us in order to improve the conditions under which we can continue to transmit and improve our DNA. And it's like, well, you know, that's, that's not so bad or weak an argument. That's a very strong argument for being a physical being. And the, you know, as we know from the second law of thermodynamics, any physical system, the moment that it's set, it starts to degenerate. And we as humans certainly are physical systems and we do exist within a physical system, which is the world. Um, and it can certainly be overloaded, you know, get hit by, you know, meteors and things like that. So, and, you know, we, we've all heard the facts, I think, that if the, the temperature of the ocean grows one degree warmer, there will be serious repercussions for the ecosystem of the ocean. Certain fish will die, which will upset other sorts of things and chains that we can't even imagine right now. But that, that seems to be a major theme within the Japanese entertainment is, industry as we've seen it. Major theme in Final Fantasy VII with the Mako reactors, the sort of power plants going off. Major theme in Hayao Miyazaki, especially in um, not, not just Spirited Away, but Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa. 
I'd say mm. especially, yeah. um, you know, industry potentially hurting something um, natural and spiritual or, or potent, you know, natural and spiritual in the case of, of spirit, um, Princess Mononoke, because of course those spirits are, are theriomorphic, as the Jungians would say. They're animal forms. You have boars, you have wolves, you have this sort of elk-like forest spirit with a human face, very interesting symbol of, you know, human intelligence and uh, animal nature wedded together perfectly, like the stag Patronus of James Potter, or Harry Potter as well. But then also here in um, Zelda. And as you know, I am, I'm not one to simply say, gosh, look at how evil humans are. And it's obvious that it's just our mistakes and that everything's bad. But I am very much willing to have the balanced idea that I think you are putting forward that obviously we make a lot more mistakes than we like to take responsibility for. And the best way of living seems to be fixing them as much as we can. Because it, I think you almost made the case and potentially every video game and every problem narrative makes this case that you don't need to look, you, you really don't need to look that hard to find things that are the matter. It doesn't matter where you go, you'll find things that are the matter. You'll often be contributing to the problems around you. And if you just recognize that, and I think that's what enlightenment is, right? The looking at the feces of the alchemist, look at your own dark side and the bad things you do that do not accord with your idea of yourself and then inform your idea of yourself, and then clean that up, and you will have started cleaning up the world around you. Which is a very interesting idea just to connect to the fact that now that I understand that idea and do believe that idea, it's funny to see myself playing a video game, which I had these meta thoughts, I'm like, now that I understand the purpose of this video game and what it's trying to convey, shouldn't I be out there doing something? But maybe that's what this is too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you are, you know, as an educator, uh, I think you're probably, you know, making an impact on people that's that's worthwhile. Um, I certainly, you know, if I had an actual hookshot, I would totally go and use it on things. <laughs> uh, but there's, you know, there's the hookshot of language too, after, after all. And also, like the, uh, the, at this point in the game, in the Ocarina of Time, you, you literally fight Link's dark side, right? You have the Dark mm -hmm. Link battle, which is really fun and, and frustrating and interesting. Um, and that's kind of a, a motif throughout the series as well. Um, I think that uh, he's one of the final bosses maybe in, in one of the original, like the second Zelda game or something like that, um, is Dark Link, right? And, and you see that in lots of ways. Um, in, some, in some sense, uh, you know, Final Fantasy VII or different Final Fantasy games, you see it. But in, in this game, maybe the, the Skull Kid is sort of your, your dark shadow, you know, figure um for for link uh he is kind of from the same place but has gone on a really different trajectory uh from link's heroic one and, and um you know his, his story is kind of worth uh thinking about and, and the game seems to indicate as much it, it sort of forces us to think about him a bit um and and i think you know the gerudo are a weird example too right ganon yeah, traditionally is is of that tribe. He um, is, of course, the final boss in most of the Zelda games. Not this one, though. He's kind of conspicuous by his absence here, actually. Um, but the Gerudo, uh, you know, make their appearance as pirates uh, on the sea rather than uh, thieves of the desert. You know, so there's a kind of interesting inversion there. And, and again, their 
they're attempting to solve a problem which they recognize, but they've gone about it in in a real underhanded kind of way, um, a really a really negative way. So I think they're they're an interesting sort of reflection on that that same problem of like, yeah, we we know there is an issue here. Uh, it's bigger than anything that um, we've encountered before, and so we're kind of doing our best to to try to solve it. But but in so doing, we're actually it turns out maybe not solving it, right? Um, and and so in that situation, it does seem like you know part of their their evil might be the fact that they've got this awesome hookshot weapon that they have put in a treasure chest and left in in a closet somewhere, right? Like they're not they're not using it. They they have the tool and uh, and they they try they sort of hoard it, you know, dragon like, um, and it's up to you to come in and and properly use the tool and properly unite the um the lost things that that are necessary here that's so fascinating because that is literally what you spend the entire game doing right you gather the tools that are present in the places where the people have problems but you somehow are the one because you're looking for them because you're looking for a solution because you're willing to look to the source of the problem um you are you find these tools wherever it is that you go that enable you to solve the problems of these people. And I totally agree that uh, Link's shadow self is the imp in this case because he also wears a mask. He also has a fairy. He has came to your able, has dark fairy um, because he has gone down the dark path. Um, and you will yourself get a deity mask, you said, to fight against him in the end. So it's like a sort of Jesus versus Lucifer sort of motif. And you, I mean, you literally, and he, whereas you go around trying to unpollute and improve the world, he tries to bring the moon down on the world, just like Zephyr tries to bring the meteor down yes. against you. And, you know, you both have obnoxiously long swords, symbols for your intellects. And it's <laughs> curved. But I want to ask another big question, just because I read The Merchant of Venice yesterday for the first time, and I loved it, and uh, also read Bloom's critical commentary on it. And, of course, he's very uh, critical of the anti-Semitic elements in it. But I wanted to ask about the Gerudo, because I think there's a, a straightforward, a t potential racist way to read them, and then a much deeper way as well. Um, and so I want to be careful about how I ask this question, but I think it's potentially an important question, which is this. What do you think the connection between the portrayal of the Gerudo is and the fact that they are antagonists? They are obviously Middle Eastern desert-dwelling people who are good with horses and arrows. So they're potentially anti-Semitic either in an anti-Arab sort of uh, Arab way or an anti-literally Semitic uh, Jewish way, though they do appear to be more Arab like um i i wonder what that means for the japanese slash zelda perception of these people whether you think that's a problem within this game because we have talked about potential racist elements in it though potentially uh there's also always going to be a element of racism in a simplifying process which uh transliterates reality into a simplified form for a young mind i wonder whether you think that's problematic or just necessary but the second thing is, since you mentioned that they are not literally desert dwellers in this case, they are pirates, is there more connection to the fact that they're antagonistic because they lack a homeland? Because, because they are themselves wanderers. Is there some element of, I don't know, unethicality or messing up the ecosystem of the places that they come into um, because they don't know how to acclimate? To them, literally, it doesn't seem as if they 
they try and join with the Zoras here, but rather they attempt to find a solution to the problem that puts them at odds with the Zora. And so I want to be as respectful yeah. about that question as possible, but also highlight it. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair question, right? Um, it's certainly like a, a real timely one uh, when you see like the kind of immigration debates that are happening in Europe and the United States these days. I think it's a natural uh, sort of read that that's possible here. Um, I, I think that there is something to this sort of representation of the other, right, of different sort of races and things in video games um, that sort of simplifies them and uses them as a kind of uh, shorthand, right, for, for otherness or for a certain kind of diversity in the game. Um, it, of course, is not like <laughs> a, a critical representation of reality or something like that, but it is suitable for like maybe exposing the player to something different and, and interesting and maybe just like giving them the seed of an idea about reality, which is worth pursuing. Um, I think that it's good to have, you know, different races in games. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's like inherently racist or something to like represent uh, another sort of skin tone or, or, you know, body form or something like that. Uh, it just seems like a, an element of, of diversity that, that adds to the realism of the game in a way that there should be different sorts of people living in different parts of the world or something like that, right? different cultures, different approaches. And, and so the Gerudo are an interesting one. If you sort of want to map them onto a real world analog, then yeah, something Middle Eastern does seem to be the, the one. Um, and it's obviously a really fraught subject, you know, anti-Semitism or, or anti-Islamic uh, even, right? anti sort of other writ large. And you can even expand it to like, um, misogyny or something in the case of the Gruda, they all seem to be female. So there's that to throw in there too, uh, just to make it, you know, more problematic. But, but I think, uh, yeah, they're, they're presented as being, um, you know, no more or less problematic than any of the other characters in the game. Um, maybe on the face of it, they're a little more nefarious because they are called pirates and whatnot. But but they do, you know, like the pirates in Wind Waker, they turn out to be sort of uh, have kind of a heart of gold sort of thing going on. And that's a, a well-worn trope. And so I think should be respected. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, as far as like the specifics of their, their racial makeup and, and so forth, uh, I take it to be an, an attempt at sort of exoticism, right? Showing you something um, that's in a way recognizable, but in a way stylized. Um, it, it has certain kind of connotations with, you know, maybe a thousand and one nights or Aladdin or something, something like that seems to be what they're kind of reaching for in Ocarina of Time anyway. And then by extension, bringing them back for Majora's Mask. Um, but also, you know, they're, they're sort of um, an important uh, sense in which they are also, I think we brought this up before. They're also more adult, actually, right? Um, and in a game that's so concerned with time and, and rites of passage and, and you know, transitions, changes of form, well, that, that's kind of interesting to include. Um, and again, you know, there's, there's a sort of sexuality to them that is more 
uh, salient, <laughs> let's say, um, than you might yes, expect. In kind of game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And well, that I mean, again, that's that certainly uh, adds to the the interest of the game. Um, and it is maybe pretty problematic, actually, but. But that's something that is in the real world too, and you know you got to kind of address at some point. There's one last thing I wanted to say. I, I was reading a um, a book about Chrono Trigger, uh, which is another great game we should play someday or play again. But but this book, um, it spends a lot of time. The author is uh, Michael P. Williams, and he spends a lot of time talking about um, gender and sexuality and race and and things like that. Um, I think a little bit to the detriment of the actual game unfortunately but but he does make some good points in there which you know were illuminating for me about sort of the way that japanese people seem to treat those topics and uh in video games and and so it's worth a look um and he says something about this concept of sort of anti-nationalism or maybe that's not a good translation but the word in japanese means something like not um you know national and it's just like the way that characters in Japanese games are represented is not to specifically connote any real world country. So even in you know Chrono Trigger, his examples, right? Like they they the characters all seem to have sort of European looking, you know, skin tones, or or even like they they don't look like they're from any particular place. They're just sort of like general generically, you know, medieval or prehistoric or whatever. Um, they, they certainly don't look, you know typically Japanese or, or something like that. And and that's kind of, I guess, the case in Zelda too. You, you have different looking people, but they don't look like they're from any particular place really. Um, so I just wanted to kind of throw that out as something I was well, that, thinking about. As that's, that's deeply fascinating. And I think we're also digging at the root of the question of how differing peoples see differing peoples. Like how do the Japanese people perceive other people? Mm -hmm. And because you know, something that we have to admit if we're truly multicultural and if we're actually open-minded is there is a difference between peoples and nations. And there obviously are, you know, not just in terms of, you know, the differing races that exist, but also the differing languages, the differing language groups, the different regions, the differing, you know, games and sports that exist. We don't want to deny all this. You know, I just learned about something called Gaelic soccer yesterday, which seemed very interesting. Apparently the Irish and as well as the Scottish has some, you know, some games I've never even heard of. And, you know, if I just assume that I already know about them and they're the exact same as I am, that's going to deprive the world of richness. Why would I travel at all? Why would I learn anything new? In fact, uh, you know, it seems sort of like a, a sort of tyrannical or totalitarian itness that everything is the same, like that suburban hellscape in a wrinkle in time. But I like what you mentioned <laughs> about the different races making the game more interesting because I think we need to put this to rest. World of Warcraft, Star Wars, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. What is a common feature of all of those that everybody finds fascinating? Elder Scrolls Three, Morrowind, World of Warcraft. They all have differing races. They all have differing peoples with differing characteristics that people love learning the nuances to and seeing the conflicts between. Um, Starcraft too. We as people love encountering new different people especially if you consider us as information gathering creatures that have a mind, which is our evolutionary adaptation of the world, 
What is it that you find when you meet someone who's different from you? You find a treasure trove, right? Or Jordan Peterson and the unions would say you actually find the dragon and the treasure trove, which I think is an important thing to recognize that you find potentially a threat, literally in terms of new germs, but also in terms of new ideas and ways of doing things but also potentially a treasure for you because if you can appropriately integrate the new information and you know, adapt to the germs that somebody has just brought from a new place, that that expands you, that expands your life, that expands your territory. I mean, you, uh, perhaps our listeners do not know, are a pretty heavy traveler. You've seen a lot of places and it's like, why is it that you go to these places and recommend that people go? Why is it that you read so many books as well? Are you yourself attempting to be a traveler to bring something back? And I guess my second question here too is just, or I guess I was just agreeing with you there, but my, my second question is, what do you think the connection between perceived uh, antagonism and nomadism is within fantasy literature and games? Because we see this not only in the Gerudo, but also in the Egyptians as well in your favorite book series, the His Dark Materials series. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that element. Yeah, the nomadic sort of people versus the settled people. I mean, that that's obviously something that anthropologists have gone to town with um, in, in their read of uh, Cain and Abel, even, right? Like, that that sort of, like, represents the, the conflict between those, those two groups or something. Um, yeah, and the Egyptians are obviously way cool. Um, everyone should read The Golden Compass. Uh, aka Northern Lights. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, they, what I would say is that they, they are not the focus of the book, right? That conflict is not like the most important thing about that story, any less or more than, than this is the most important thing about this story. Um, but it is there, you know, and it, and it adds texture to the game and, and uh, or the story or whatever. Um, and it does seem to be a kind of fundamental uh, tension within people to like want to on the one hand travel and learn new things on the other hand to want to settle and establish right permanent things or, or semi-permanent things right and and I think that that's a a really important dynamic right to be able to um, have some give and take between those two elements uh, to kind of ground that tension or, or you know utilize it in some way um, that's that's productive um, but you know that's I think uh, a fine thing to include in in any story or video game um, it's definitely become kind of more of a question these days than I think anybody really expected uh, you know when when people are writing books about the end of history um, it sort of like snuck up on some people that well you know actually every generation has to sort of deal with this question again um anew and and as technology changes economies change you know it becomes more of a thing again <laughs> uh but that i think you know takes us kind of far afield from the, the game uh, it, it's an interesting problem though um it's certainly one that is driving a lot of a lot of other discussions these days um certainly a lot of people are interested in it well, you know, I think the best way to make things which are defined as other or perceived as other or not other is to integrate them and to learn about them, not to deny that they exist as other. I think that's, that's sort of like equivalent to the Freudian idea of repression, 
and that you know mm -hmm. you try and stuff something into a box which by the principles of displacement you know is too big for a box what's going to happen you know it's uh it's going to bust out and that's just not going to be a very helpful category uh other if we just define things as not other rather than truly learning about them instead of pretending mm -hmm. to be urbane and i suppose i'm making a comment on our contemporary generation but you know we are the living and uh instead of denying real differences, I think actually investigating differences would be a more scientific way or a more empirical way or a more genuine, honest and helpful way of going, you know, going about our business. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that it's, it's just like, it's interesting to me that um, people are, I think, naturally inclined to want to learn and explore. And yet there's also this, thing in us that is naturally inclined to repress that right because well it's scary and dangerous and all sorts of things right so there, there there's both right everybody is going to have maybe a little more of the one than the other but but everyone's going to feel both sort of the push and the pull there um and yeah i agree it ideally we we sort of do convene and, and learn from and respect one another um yeah obviously that is to be desired and and ardently you know pursued it's but it is complicated right i think that's important to recognize as right. well very it, it's very tough um given you know all sorts of kind of nested sorts of problems um that everybody is also dealing with all the time uh well anyway yeah i anyway i think we should probably call it for today uh and and pursue this further once uh, Ben is back and maybe with some other guests as well as we go along here. Absolutely. To add some further complications yes. to, the, uh, to the puzzle. <laughs> right, right, right. People are very complicated. I think about that now that I'm going through all these Shakespeare plays that, you know, there are always problems that arise just from putting people in new situations. And I, I do feel like that's part of what his genius is and why people consider him a seminal poet, the greatest poet um, is because he knows how to bring real human uh, character out of situations. He presents situations that are very real and then prevent, presents very real ingenious solutions to them and kind of real characters are generated through that and perhaps perhaps that's something that we're doing too and we strive towards. The, the more real the situation, the more we'll be able to manifest our character in the world. The more we try and address real problems, the more we'll shape ourselves into something, you know, worth being. Hopefully Shakespearean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always speaking in iambic pentameter, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm always throwing out some blank verse, usually 11 lines at a time. Um, well, well, wonderful conversation cool. with you, Wes. I think we're back doing Harry Potter with Sarah tomorrow, and then we have Richard yes. II later this week as well. And, uh, right on. Just, uh, and uh, I, I forget, did you already choose the play that you wanted to do with me separately from that as part of the mm -hmm. other project? Um, and would you like to in this upcoming week talk about a platonic dialogue which is a yet another piece of you know we we i've recently shared with you my large-scale grand over maestro project uh for the moment but uh after we finished final fantasy 7 but also i i wanted to start seeing whether we wanted to work towards that too yeah we could try to schedule something i i think winter's tale is probably my favorite shakespeare play yes you would say uh, definitely among the comedies anyway uh so yeah if you want to talk about that sometime and we can figure out a 
dialogue to do as well. Sounds good. All right. Well, another wonderful conversation had. I'll see you and Ben next time. All right. Take it easy. Bye.